0: What steps can healthcare sector entities take to keep up with the ever-evolving cyber threat landscape? I'm Marianne Kobasek-McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Mark Dill, Principal and Partner at consulting firm TW Security. Mark is a presenter at this year's HIMSS18 conference in Las Vegas. So Mark, Prior to joining TW Security a few years ago, you headed up information security at the Cleveland Clinic for more than a decade. As you work with healthcare clients today, what are the most disturbing trends that you see on the cyber threat landscape since your days as a CISO at the clinic?
1: Well, Marianne, one of the questions that's been age old since really the first few months that I started in that role back at Cleveland Clinic was the need to understand What organizations just like us are doing to address problems and threats? You know, back then when I submitted the first budget under my realm for improvement, some questions came in. What's Mayo doing? What's Johns Hopkins doing? What's Kaiser doing about the problem I was discussing or the recommendation that I was making? And so those were relatively difficult answers to get back then. You had to use networking to establish a trust level so that somebody would share those details. Very difficult. Now, in my consulting role, I have access to a lot more data, and so I chose to actually define what prevailing practice is. I'm of the belief that uh, for critical controls, an organization needs to understand what peers just like them are doing. So in, in my session, we're going to talk about some of the leading cyber threats. If you look at the root cause of breaches, it's predominantly about hacking, malware, phishing, ransomware a little bit about device and mobile media theft and loss. And so what are the core controls that an organization needs to put in place to identify the problem, to prevent it from happening, first off, and even with those investment of preventive-type things, you still have to be able to detect because events always get past some of the initial tool sets. Those things that are anomalies have to be investigated, so you have to have a good incident response and sometimes, unfortunately, those responses turn into a disaster recovery scenario. So, everything that I do in this session is going to correlate back to one of those strategies. Using that cyber security framework from this to have a non-technical conversation about goals and objectives that are or aren't being met to address those current threats.
0: So, Mark, based on what you see with the healthcare sector entities that you deal with. How well prepared are they to be dealing with the evolving threats that we're seeing, whether it's ransomware and other sorts of cyber attacks? How well prepared are they in terms of their security controls, for instance? It's
1: increasing. I've seen a steady increase in the maturity of security programs. So it's not enough to have a tool in place. You can have the best tool in the world, but if you don't have the processes and the talent dedicated to supporting that tool, then it, it could fail. It's not going to achieve, you know, its intended purpose. And so everything that I talk about in the session first talks about a control, whether it's in place, yes or no, but then I break it down into its elements of maturity and use my insight to begin to describe if you're not applying this sub-process to this tool, if you're not doing an annual review of the firewall rule set, The best tool in the world, the best firewall is not going to achieve its objective because old rules get stale. And I'll talk about how those things could get exploited. And that's that's what's different about this session. I've seen a lot of security surveys. They'll focus on whether a tool is in use or not. I'm going to go into the maturity of the practices and the talent and how to support it and then divide the answer up in accordance to hospital size. You know, what are critical access hospitals, 25 beds and less doing? What are small hospitals doing? What are large and even academic medical hospitals doing that I see? Mm -hmm. And that will give the audience uh, the tools to compare themselves in a way that I don't think has been made available in the past.
0: And Mark, you know, based on the work that you do with healthcare entities, do you get the feeling that a lot of organizations are too focused on checking off the HIPAA compliance check boxes and they're losing sight of some of the bigger picture things that they should be thinking about that might go beyond whatever the minimum they think HIPAA requires?
1: I think to be successful you do need to have a balanced portfolio. If you put all your efforts into compliance, you're gonna have great documentation. But hackers and viruses don't read your policies and procedures first. They, they just attack. So there has to be this balance. You don't want to put it all in having a great security profile but not having the book of evidence and the things required for compliance, and you don't want it the other direction either. I see hospitals making a really good-faith effort to improve their maturity on both what they're doing for compliance and information security. There's some pretty large differences between, you know, what a really small hospital uh, is doing and what an academic might be doing. And some surprises the other way, too. I see great signs of innovation in some of the smaller hospitals. They're just forced to do that. Sometimes, you know, in a critical access hospital or a small hospital, it's a very, very small IT team, whereas, you know, an academic, there could be hundreds of people. And so I'm going to bring to the table some of the creative ways that people are addressing the problem without breaking the bank.
0: So, Mark, what are some of the most critical security practices that you think are being most overlooked or neglected by healthcare sector entities that they really should be paying more attention to?
1: Well, I think one thing, business associates still cause a significant amount of the breaches, and so
0: vetting the security
1: profiles of your business associate once your own program is in order is important. But related to that, there's a lot of merger and acquisitions that go on where hospitals either require small practices or they lease them. And based on size, scope, and capability, their security profile for a leased small practice is way different than the hospital. But yet now they just stepped into this relationship. And so vetting out the capabilities of the partners I think is really important. It doesn't achieve the objective to have the hospital as hardened as it thinks it can be, but then to go out and lease uh, or acquire a practice That steps away from the standards that the hospital uses. That's how risk creeps into the environment. So I see a lot of partnership risk that I don't think is where it needs to be. You mentioned the checkbox, you know, checkbox for policy and even awareness. You know, the old static approach to be compliant is to deliver that static PowerPoint and awareness, but that's not really likely to change behavior. And so awareness if it's going to be effective, needs to change someone's behavior, avoiding that click by having things top of mind. And so new strategies of proactively phishing the workforce, for instance, actually have built-in metrics to validate that before and after you use them, you've made a difference in changing the click rate. That's part of the problem. It's not all a digital problem. You still have human behavior issues, as an example. A second good example is validating access control lists, of the time, it's likely with the right sample size in an organization that hasn't got mature processes and automation that somebody is going to remain in that access control list even after they've been terminated or when their role has changed and maybe they have too many rights. I see uh, some weaknesses there in terms of how frequently people look and how how deep they dig for uh, problems.
0: Now, Mark, what about security technologies? Are there any emerging technologies or underutilized technologies that you think healthcare entities need to be thinking more seriously about implementing?
1: I do. I think that some of the technology that I've been most impressed with are user behavior analytics. It's oftentimes a platform that takes the data from your security information and event management, recorrelates it, and uses an evidence-based approach to point to a fewer number of incidents that you ought to be looking at based on user IDs that are behaving differently than they did yesterday or uniquely for the first time. And the same thing for computers. If a certain asset is never connected to a database or been used in a certain way, I think highlighting those scenarios for the incident response team is really important. On the flip side, data loss prevention, great technology when implemented correctly. I see evidence of failed implementation. They're, they're trying to boil the ocean and, and use these tools well beyond the amount of staff that they have to actually support them. And so trying to do a few things well is, is a better approach than trying to do everything that the tool set can. Antivirus endpoints, everybody's got something, but I'm seeing anything from free tools trying to be used all the way up to you know some of the leading commercial next generation tools Almost everybody has got it on the roadmap, but anybody that's relying on a pattern file, you know, multiple updates throughout the day, it'll do a really good job of protecting you against just about everything except for the things you know, that came in this week. I think there's some new strategies there. A lot of organizations use compensating controls. They put their strengths across you know, their security stack and, and their investments. Um, I'll talk about what's working and what's not, but I see both some strengths and some challenges there as well. I'm also seeing more and more organizations rely on third-party penetration testing, vulnerability assessment. All those things have to work together to give you a sense of validation that all your controls are where they're supposed to be. Until you hire a, a professional pen you're not going to understand precisely how much time and how much talent it is going to take to defeat your controls. You know All these processes have findings Organizations have to react to them quickly, you know, with a sense of priority. In other words, you have to have investments at all the layers, identification, protection, detection, incident response. I'm seeing some weaknesses there. I'm pleased when I see organizations interested in proactively testing their response, using scenario-specific tabletop drills or beyond tabletop with real events in an isolated lab. Organizations aren't stepping up to that plate as frequently as I'd like to see. And coming from a very mature disaster recovery, I have probably 45 bare metal recovery tests under my belt in in a very mature organization. I'm not seeing a lot of hospitals actually rehearsing their disaster recovery scenarios. They have the investment in technology to fail over. Sometimes they source their EMR to the vendor, but they're not actually rehearsing. To me, you should be able to give the executives a sense of recoverability confidence so that they know that 90-plus percent of the time you can bring back much of your application stack in the state of recovery time. And it, you would never be able to get that metric until you actually test, and I'm not seeing the testing that
0: I'd like to see. Thanks, Mark. I've been speaking to Mark Dill. I'm Marianne Kobasek mcgee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.